0: Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal. On the Sunday Thanksgiving show, we talked about the long ballots that Vancouverites can expect when they go to vote for their mayor. Is it time we gave up our at-large voting system for a ward system? And we talked about credit card interchange fees. How did this huge change come about? But first, there's a drought on BC's Sunshine Coast, and it may not be totally due to climate change. We are talking about the drought that is happening in BC. BC Sunshine Coast has gone over three months without a good amount of rain. Water supply is so low that it's unlikely to last past November. And the drought is the worst it's ever been there. Several parts of BC are now experiencing level five drought conditions. Why is this happening? What needs to be done? And what can we expect for the days ahead? Dr. Younes Alila is a professor of forest resources Management and joins me on the line now. Hello, good morning.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So, how unprecedented are these conditions we're experiencing now in BC?
1: Well, they they are uh, somewhat unprecedented, but I'm I'm afraid that we are we are going. This is just the tip of the iceberg, and we may be up to a big surprise. And because these uh, extreme droughts. Are very sensitive to climate change, uh, uh, climate change disturbances, and um, and therefore they may, they will become more more frequent, or uh, they could actually become uh, spreading over longer duration and more uh, severe. Uh, usually, you know, it's easy to actually uh, uh, put the blame uh, squarely on climate change. But there are other things that we are doing over the land uh, that actually uh, are exacerbating uh, the drought effects and uh, uh, and i'd like to point out during this interview to the way we manage the forest in the mid to high elevation on the coastal mountains uh, of b c
0: yes, please say more uh, about that we,
1: yeah so so the the way we have been uh, uh, clear cutting of the pro- in the province especially mid-to-high elevation of the mountains, contribute and and exacerbate the effect of the droughts. Over the last several decades, we have been draping B.C. with excessive clear logging. If you fly over British Columbia and you throw your head out of the window of the plane, there is 90% chance it will fall on a cut block. The B.C. government legislated replanting trees immediately after logging in, their, in, the, in these cut blocks. Yes. But the research has shown that during the growing season, the younger trees, uh, 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 while growing in the cut block, consumes 50% more water from wow. the soil than the older trees that were logged in there.
0: Why is that?
1: This, well, I mean, a, a, a tree that in order for trees to grow right they, they actually consume water trees are are are, are, are phenomenal pumps uh, they actually suck soil moisture from the uh, uh, suck the moisture from the soil via their roots and evaporate them back into the atmosphere that's a process we refer to hydrologists as evapotranspiration and it's fairly known that trees are very good pumps of water from the that's the way they grow but of course, the, the, the regenerated forest and the cut block are growing much more vigorously, and they have higher metabolism. Obviously, and research has shown that their water consumption from the ground, which feeds the channels during the late summer, early fall, uh, are 50 percent larger than the trees that the older trees that were there before they were logged. This uh, this this process the research has shown that it lasts over 50 years after harvesting, especially when the younger generated trees are between, 50 years and, uh, between 15 years and 50 years. So although this phenomena of the younger trees are consuming more water and exacerbating the, the, the droughts, um, is, is um, occurs both in the coast and in the interior environment, it is a bigger problem on the coast because the regrowth of the new forest in, on the coast is much more aggressive than it is in the, in the interior. The, re, the, the regeneration and the cut block in the interior uh, is actually much slower. But on the coast, because typically we have more moisture uh, and a longer growing season, they actually pump more water. Now, a second uh, mechanism via which the clear-cut logging practice uh, dries up channel and make more severe these uh, droughts are the roads that we build in the mountains to access the timber. Uh, these roads, are, are uh, they do intercept subsurface flow, what used to be subsurface flow running below the ground after it rains and after the snow melts. Uh, what used to be subsurface flow is now... Uh, is intercepted via the cut banks of these forest roads. Such intercepted runoff is drained quickly um, through road ditches, and these ditches are connected by culverts running under the roads, and these culverts are connected back into the channel network of the watershed. Uh, The result is that what used to be subsurface runoff, which recharges the groundwater, which comes in handy during the Late summer low flow in the channel system and uh, fall now becomes surface runoff, and it it is actually drained very quickly out of the watershed, uh, as opposed to slowly, um, as opposed to slowly, basically um, recharging that deeper groundwater, which is key to the to the to the to the dry periods of the year, which is late summer, early fall. So a third and final mechanism via which uh, clear-cut logging could actually um, um, deprive the groundwater from recharge is that on the coast, mid to high elevation, the the precipitation, when it falls, it actually falls in the form of uh, wet snow. And that wet snow intercepted by the, by the forest before logging, right, drips into water which infiltrates under the for, uh, under the drips, uh, drips from, the, from the branches and leaves. The wet snow drips, melts, and drips under the forest canopy. And it, it actually feeds, infiltrates into the soil and, and, and replenish soil moisture deficit. Feeds that groundwater that will help us deal with the droughts later on the in the year. When you cut the trees in mid uh, to high elevation on the coast, that process is not there anymore, and suddenly you have the snowpack developing mid to high elevation yeah. during the, the in in, in uh, uh, when the snow falls, and then that snowpack in the cut block end up melting quicker and being delivered out of the watershed to the outlet and to the ocean earlier.
0: Oh, so the trees almost slow that process down.
1: Exactly. So, therefore, when the trees are not there to slow the process of the infiltration and melt um, um, uh, 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 to recharge the groundwater, that snowpack developing in the blocks in the so-called snow transient zone, which is mid to high elevation on the coast, that actually, and that snow will melt quicker and will actually run out of the watershed this earlier is... in the season as opposed to melting slowly under the trees to recharge the groundwater. Yeah. Therefore, these are three major mechanisms uh, 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 um, invoked, uh, uh, consequences of the excessive clear cut logging. In my opinion, the science is there and clear that it. that will exacerbate the effect of droughts that are caused by climate change. And um, the excessive logging in this province uh, is actually um, unprecedented. And um, over the last several uh, decades... Um, we have been doing a lot of clear cataloging. Dr. Younes, we're going to
0: have to leave it there, but thank you so much uh, for illustrating for us there how the drought is not just due to climate change, it also has to do majorly with clear cutting for the various reasons he outlined for us there. Let's talk credit card interchange fees. We covered this a bit on the Mike Smith show last week. Well, those fees are now in effect. But by now, maybe you've had some time to think about how you may or may not shop or pay any differently. But those changes came about in the first place because of a class action lawsuit. And my guest now is Luciana Brasil. She is a partner at Branch McMaster in Vancouver and worked on the lawsuit that led to the settlement. Luciana, Good morning. Welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Was this change to the, to the norm really needed? Now, I ask this on behalf of most listeners that wrote me in. Uh, you know, customers are feeling the squeeze more than ever. Their bosses are holding back on raises and inflation is rising. Do, do these huge corporations like TELUS really need to charge the customer the credit charge interchange fee?
2: Well, look, the the case was brought on behalf of all merchants across Canada. And so we're not talking only about the large merchants. We're talking also about the smaller merchants, the small grocery shops, the restaurants, and all of those that operate on an incredibly thin margin. And what was happening is that um, because of the way that the credit card uh, regime is set up by the networks, by Visa and MasterCard, uh, until now, merchants were not allowed to show to consumers what the cost of accepting credit cards is. And not all credit cards are created equal. If you look within the Visa or the MasterCard banner, there will be more basic credit cards that don't give a lot of points and rewards. And those have a much lower cost of acceptance for merchants. And then you have all the way up to the infinite and privilege and you know elite cards that carry a lot more benefits to consumers, but also carry a lot more cost to merchants. And the way the rules were set up is merchants who chose to accept a credit card had to accept all credit cards of that banner. So if they accepted Visa, they had to accept all. And if they accepted MasterCard, they had to accept all. And when the customers came to pay, they weren't allowed to differentiate between the cards and the other methods of payment in terms of the cost. So if you were to buy cash, you would have to pay uh, essentially the same that you're paying with the credit cards. And if you open your wallet and you had three different credit cards and one was a cheaper one and the other is a more expensive, the merchant couldn't say, um, you know, I will accept one, but not the other. And so what happened is the consumer who was making the choice about what method of payment I'm going to use always picked obviously what brought the most benefits to them, which is the point rewards, right? And so so with that happening, what we saw was the reverse of a competitive um, environment where the consumer is always looking for the cheaper alternative and forcing people to compete to lower the prices. What was happening is the consumer, by choosing always the more expensive cards, were actually encouraging the launch of even more expensive cards with even more products and even more rewards. And that was costing merchants quite a lot of money. And so what this case has done and what the change, the no surcharge um, prohibition has done is it allows the merchants to say to the consumer look, you choose how you want to pay. But if you pick this particular card, um, you will, there will be a surcharge because it costs us a lot more money to accept that. So I think what it does is it's opening the eyes of the consumers. And at the end of the day, it's not about increasing the prices because the prices are not to be all increased. All that is to happen is if you choose a particular method of payment, which that merchant elects to surcharge, and there's some guidelines and hurdles for that, then there will be a corresponding payment. So
0: interesting. Thank you for that that kind of uh, context there. It's helpful in understanding how this all happened in the first place. But it does seem to be that now the tables have turned offering consumers less options.
2: Well, the consumers still have the option to choose to pay by debit, they choose to pay by cash, and, and even to choose to pay by credit card, because not all merchants are going to be surcharging. It's not a mandatory thing. And merchants elect whether or not to surcharge. And the idea is a lot of the merchants are wanting to see what the consumer reaction will be in order to decide what they need to do. Also having regards to their own margins and what they can and cannot do to operate. Yeah. And if, if a merchant chooses, they can choose to surcharge by brand or by product type. If they they surcharge by brand, then all cards of that brand will be surcharged. But if they charge by product type, then that means that they will surcharge some Visa or MasterCard cards, but not all, right? And in that option, the consumer still has the ability to pay by credit card. It's just, if they want to avoid the surcharge, they'll have to migrate to a less expensive credit card that doesn't give them the points. So the consumer will also have to choose do I want the points, or do I want the extra cash in my wallet?
0: Okay, so merchants have the option of being selective and offering uh, various kinds of cards, and being transparent to the customer about which ones the the customer would be taking the ding for, and which ones uh, the merchant would be absorbing the cost for. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So one of the, there are a number of of, of uh, requirements that the merchants have to satisfy in order to be able to implement the surcharge. And one of them is there has to be some clear signage at the point of sale about that. And there has to be some clear indication about the amount that is going to be surcharged and the surcharge amount, and this is very important. It's not a a revenue producing charge. Like they cannot surcharge more than what the cost of that interchange point is. Uh, And there are limits on that. Um, So it's supposed to be a cost recovery as opposed to a revenue producing thing.
0: That's so interesting. Okay. And is there going to be some way to, are there going to be some checks and balances to make sure that uh, merchants are not charging more than they're allowed to?
2: Yeah, so merchants have to be working with the uh, the payment processors, so the global and Moneris and Chase's of the world. Um, part of the process leading up to surcharge is they have to have communication with those Uh, payment providers and those payment providers obviously want to make sure that Visa and MasterCard remain happy with them uh, to continue to provide the services. So you can bet that there's going to be quite a lot of oversight into what's going on. And and there are some clear parameters and we have been working with merchant organizations leading up to now to kind of educate them on what they can and can't do. And uh, there's quite a bit of information out there and resources for merchants to make sure that they do Um, only what they are allowed to do, and this doesn't become uh, problematic.
0: And I understand that other countries have a cap on the fee. I think it's uh, like 0.3% in the EU and it's 0.5% in Australia. Was there any thought given here to possibly creating a cap on that interchange fee?
2: Oh, that's a really interesting question that you ask, because obviously the, the, the surcharge ability is part of a settlement of a class action lawsuit that has been going on for or was going on for over a decade and in the context of that lawsuit where we sued the banks and the networks Um, we were looking at those countries because one of the responses from them is, look, we need to charge at this amount to be able to provide all the services that we provide to consumers when we provide credit card services and to merchants. And we were like, well, but look at these other countries, you're able to provide services and you're charging a lot less, right? So if we had not settled the case and if we had continued on the litigation side of things um, that would have been one of the things that we would have examined and said look uh, the amount that is charged for interchange in Canada is too high and we can see that it's too high because of what's happening in these other countries but of course we settled the case and, and we never really got to examine that and ask that question at the end of the day um, and, and the surcharge amount is, uh, is, is something that has been negotiated as part of the settlement
0: Interesting. So interesting. Luciana, thank you so much for being with us today and explaining it all. You're welcome. We are talking about the mayoral elections. Now, we have some long lists to scroll. So many candidates for us to all figure out whether we're voting for them or not. So many people to choose from 70 city council candidates in Vancouver and over 50 in Surrey. Talk about a long ballot. Why do we have so many candidates? Well, it all comes down to the fact that we have an at-large system versus the word system that is common across Canada. Now, we've brought a poli-sci expert on to explain the difference of them to us. And that's Hamish Telford, an associate professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish.
3: Good morning, Raji.
0: All right. So let's talk about these two quite different systems. And I understand that we're unique here in B.C. with going with the at-large one, correct?
3: That is correct. So in in BC uh, we have what's called an at large system. So Vancouver has ten city councillors, and uh, citizens can vote for up to ten candidates to run for council. Um, and that's why, and we've got you know seventy to to choose from. It's it's really quite bewildering as you try and sort through all of this, and then you have to make your strategic calculation: should I vote for ten? Or does that just dilute my vote too thinly? Maybe I should vote for four and maximize their chances to get elected, and so on and so forth. The theory is having an at-large council will have a council that makes decisions on behalf of the whole city. They're not beholden to a neighborhood as councillors. They're thinking about what is good for the city. The theory is nice, um, but it may also be the case that some corners of the city don't get due consideration because nobody feels particularly responsible for them. So by contrast, a ward system would divide uh, the city up into a number of electoral districts, and probably in this case 10, and you would elect one councillor per ward. Uh, very similar to how we vote in federal and provincial elections in our, in our riding. Uh, and this sort of reduces the number of candidates quite considerably. There would be, be a handful of candidates running for council in your particular ward. You would only have to learn those six, seven, eight councillors, probably because it's a smaller district. All of them would be able to drop flyers off at your door and you'd get a much better handle on who's actually running and who's going to represent your district. The mayor, of course, would still be elected citywide.
0: So interesting, because what you're talking about there about being beholden to a neighborhood and overly focusing on specific issues in the ward system, so that can be seen as a a pitfall, but then that can also be seen as the benefit there, that if you are in a ward system, that you can, you know, hold someone's feet to the fire a little bit more on issues that matter to you specifically, correct? Correct.
3: That's right. And you can get somebody to take responsibility if you're a citizen in your part of the city and you have a concern about a a traffic intersection or some such thing. There is a person that you can go to who is obligated to hear your concerns um, and and if it is indeed a problem to to follow up, whereas in an at-large system... None of the counselors might be familiar with your neighbourhood or feel any particular responsibility to your neighbourhood. And they're, in theory, they are supposed to take up your concerns. But if that's not a part of the city that they live in or know um, or where they get votes, then they, it might be difficult for you to have your concern heard and acted on.
0: And then in B.C., didn't we try to see if people had an interest to switch to a ward system at some point?
3: We have had referenda in Vancouver in the past, uh, and those referenda on a ward system, and those referenda were always defeated. Uh, but that, I think, related to the pattern of party politics that we had back then. In decades gone by, we had a very stable two-party system, the NPA on the right and COPE on, on the left. And the system really benefited the more conservative, uh, MPA party because voters in the more prosperous neighborhoods of Vancouver, sort of Point Grey and Shaughnessy, Ferrisdale, so on and so forth, tended to vote more often, um, and at a higher rate and, and for the MPA. So when referenda were held, um, these citizens who voted disproportionately were able to defeat, uh, um, the idea of a ward system. But I think the city has fundamentally changed since then. Attitudes on the electoral system have changed. Of course, that old two-party system has been blown up, and now we have a system which nobody can make sense of.
0: Yeah, it's definitely confusing to see so many names on the ballot. That is for sure. Now, what system do you think would better serve the population of BC?
3: I've always been coming from Toronto, which is a very large city with a ward System. I have always been bewildered um, about this at-large system. I've lived in B.C. for 30 years. Now I still have trouble getting my head around it. So I'm not saying that a ward system is necessarily better. Uh, It's certainly what I was more familiar with growing up, and intuitively, it makes more sense to me.
0: It does seem to the word system does seem to um, inspire more community participation, more community action, more community interest, I think. But one thing I wonder about if it also protects uh, a province, a greater region um, from NIMBYism to have an at-large system. What do you think about that? Can I give you an example? I'm thinking about, for for example, the Squamish housing development at Vanier Park at UBC. There are many residents uh, who are very passionately against this development who live right there. But there are people who don't live in that neighborhood. They live in other areas that would technically be, if we were in a ward system, they would be in a different ward. And those people say, no, of course, up with the development. Let's get on with it.
3: So in the case of NIMBYism, if people really object to this, you have a councillor who represents your neighbourhood and they'll presumably get on board uh, with those concerns because they'll be worried about being re-elected. But none of the other councillors, in other wards will feel the threat of being defeated in the next election. But in an at-large system, they too would fear that their votes would go down. So I actually think that in the at-large system, there is a greater possibility of NIMBYism. All of the councillors will feel a threat um, if they if they get on board with certain development projects, whereas in, in a, <clears throat> an award system, you might have one councillor strenuously objecting, but a majority in favour of a project.
0: Sure, yeah, I guess it could go both ways. Hamish, that's all very interesting, and thank you so much for sharing the context on it. You're welcome, Raji. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.